It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card, you call the number for help, and can't get a hold of anyone. If you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. It's been nearly 40 years since Jimmy Carter, a peanut farmer and former governor from Plains, Georgia, was elected president of the United States. In the decades since he was the leader of the free world, Jimmy Carter has traveled the globe with Rosalind by his side in service to people struggling with disease, poverty, and war. His lifelong work earned him a Nobel Peace Prize in 2002. Now, in his 29th book, a New York Times bestseller called A Full Life, President Carter uses his faith as the lens through which he views all things. So welcome. You're the first president. Well, I'm delighted to be here. It's a beautiful place, and thank you for letting me come. Thank you. Thank you. Super Soul Sunday, we try to talk about how our spirituality enacted in our lives, how our faith shows up in real works. Uh, so I want to talk to you a lot about that, if okay. you will, today. I but I always wanted to ask you this, even years ago when, when you and Mrs. Carter were on the Oprah show, I thought to ask this question and didn't. I always wonder what happens in the helicopter ride out when you are leaving the White House for the final time and you're in that helicopter and we're getting ready to inaugurate the next president. And you are in that, you board those steps, you get in that chopper, that door closes. And what is that feeling? Is the feeling? Well, mine was exhilaration. And, really? And Thanksgiving that the hostages were finally released because I hadn't been to bed for three days and three nights. Wow. In November 1979, 66 Americans were taken hostage when a group of Iranian students stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. The world watched as President Carter worked tirelessly to negotiate their release. The crisis dominated the final year of his presidency. After 444 days in captivity, the hostages were released just moments after President Carter left office. I had just been negotiating with the Iranians and with uh, 12 other countries to uh, get the uh, release of our hostages who had been in prison for more than uh, a year. And uh, at 9 o'clock that morning, they were already in the airplane ready to take off from Tehran. But the Ayatollah Khomeini kept them there until after I was no longer president. But when I got the word from the Secret Service that the hostages had actually taken off and were on the way uh, to Germany, uh, it was one of the 
best days, best moments of my life, I think. And Rose and I celebrated all the way to the helicopter, got on and, and then flew to uh, Andrews Air Force Base, got on Air Force One, which was not, no longer Air Force One since I was not the president anymore, and flew down to planes. What did you talk about? I think we've talked mostly about the hostages, hostages. Uh, schedule, and I knew they were going to come to uh, Wiesbaden, Germany, from Iran. And uh, President Reagan was nice enough to invite me to go and meet them. I remember that. And I didn't know how they were going to react to me. And when I walked in the room where all of them were assembled, they stood up and broke into applause, and one by one they embraced me and thanked me for getting them out. Was there a hint of disappointment, though, that the, that the release happened not on your watch, but immediately after your watch? You know, I really didn't think about that until later, when the uh -huh. news media began to come in on mm -hmm. why did they, I had to hold them until after I was no longer present. But I didn't worry about that. I was so thankful to get them out. Mm -hmm. I knew all of their families. I had met with them three or four times a year to explain the status of the hostages. And uh, when they were first taken, we sent word to the Ayatollah through the Germans and others that if he injured a hostage, we would close off all access between Iran and the outside world. And if he hurt or killed a hostage, we would attack Iran militarily. And so he was very careful not to let any hostage be injured or killed. I think what's interesting about you, you were the first uh, president who was born again Christian. That was something that to a lot of the country at the time was um, unheard of, unfamiliar, but you proclaimed that from the beginning. Well, that's the way I was born and raised. You know, born again was a standard item of a conversation, it was a kind of standard phrase used mm -hmm. by all of, of uh, people in our church. And I was in a fundraiser in a backyard in North Carolina, and one of the reporters asked me, are you a born again Christian? And I said, yes. And the next day, all of the news media thought, well, he thinks he's uh, endowed by God to be president and he's mm. getting his instructions from heaven and, and that sort of thing. So although it was a common uh, expression for me and all the yeah. folks that are in my church, it was new to the national media. You said that you, obviously, you, you're a praying man. And uh, I read in A Full Life where you said you never prayed more than you did when you were in the White House. What was your prayer? That last year... Uh, was when I prayed most, mm -hmm. when the hostages were being held. I prayed that I could get the hostages released and restored to freedom without going to war and uh, attacking. When you pray, do you pray on your knees? On occasion, I mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. A few times I've gone on my knees deliberately. One time in Camp David, when I thought Sadat was leaving without uh, an agreement, mm -hmm. I put on a coat and tie for a change, and I knelt down and prayed to God to, to help me with uh, Sadat. And I went over and had a horrible confrontation with him, and he decided to stay. In 1978, President Carter invited Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin and Egyptian President Anwar Sadat to meet at Camp David. After a tense and emotional 13 days, a historic peace agreement was finally reached. The Camp David Accords is considered one of the greatest achievements of Jimmy Carter's presidency. What was your... And what is your fervent prayer? What is the prayer that resides in your heart? That I can use the uh, best of my talent and ability and uh, influence to enhance the kingdom of God on earth, which I believe 
comprises peace and uh, and freedom and uh, the alleviation of suffering, human rights. Mm -hmm. What What's interesting is, you know, a lot of people watching us right now feel like that they have the weight of the world on their shoulders. They feel burdened. But when you are president of the United States, you, oh, you literally did. have the weight of the world on oh, your shoulders. You did. did you feel that? I did. Are you constantly aware of that? Yeah. Yes, I did. I knew that I had, you know, the biggest military force in the world and uh, the most influence in uh, economics and um, politics and culture than perhaps any other human being on earth. And I wanted to use it wisely and, uh, and with um, a maximum possible element of humility mm -hmm. and, um, and be aware of how my decisions could affect other people for the better or worse. So what role did your faith play in all of your works? Well, I tried to put my faith into practical application when I was in the White House and also when I was earlier governor and so forth. And uh, When was it tested the most, your faith? When the hostages were being held and when I was urged by almost all of my advisors, including my wife, that I should take military action against Iran. And I, and I had, I felt that my Christian faith uh, called on me to avoid using military action when I didn't have to. Mm -hmm. and, and I was lucky that when I was president, we never dropped a bomb, we never fired a missile, we never shot a bullet. So I was lucky in, in that respect. And, and, we and would you it. say that's because of your commitment to faith? I think that was a major element of it. Mm -hmm. And I would say that, that even at Camp David, when I had a, a very serious test with Begin and Sadat, that fortunately for us, and I think the reason we finally reached an agreement was that all three of us were devout believers. Um, Menachem Begin was the first prime minister of Israel who was ever deeply religious. The rest of them are basically secular. Sadat had a, a round spot on top of his, on his forehead where he had knelt down and prayed with his forehead on the ground since he was a child. And I was a devout Christian. So I think that those three disparate uh, religions. You had the three greatest religions represented, right? Well, there. we did. That's yes. true. And 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 I think all of us were sincere and fervent about it. I was so curious when I was reading uh, a full life of how you grew up. You grew up mostly around black people. Yes, I was. I was the only white child in the whole neighborhood. We had about two hundred African Americans who lived in Archery, Georgia. I was so struck by that. Well, that's the way I lived. And my mother was a registered nurse. She worked sometimes all night long. And I was really raised by African-American women. Uh, and so I grew up in a, you might say, a black culture. Mm -hmm. All my friends were African-American. And the people with whom I worked in the field and the people with whom I wrestled and fought and the people with whom I went fishing and hunting were all African-Americans. And so that was my life. And I felt kind of in an alien culture when I got old enough to, to go to a white school and that sort of thing. Don't go anywhere. More to come after this short break. No two travelers are exactly alike, and that means no two trips should be either. Texas' vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. Are you a beach person? Well, you'll be having fun under the sun with Texas' 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore and foodies can't get enough of Texas' world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, 
Visit internationally recognized art museums and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. You tell a <clears throat> remarkable story of, I think you were about 14 years old, and you were with your two African-American friends, mm -hmm. and you were going to enter a gate. Remember that story? Yes, we were coming out of a field toward the uh, barn, mm -hmm. and we went through what we call the pasture gate. And when we got to the pasture gate, to my surprise, my two African-American friends my age stepped back and let me go first. And I thought it was a trick, that they had a tripwire there to make me fall or something like that. Yeah. And it was only later that I realized that that was probably a turning point in their life as well as mine. Their parents had probably told them that we had reached the age when they needed to defer to me because I was white and they were not. And it was only in retrospect that I understood the deep meaning of that, of that action. Yes, you say, I reckon they had to obey their parents' prompting or command. We only saw it vaguely then, but we were transformed at that place. A silent line was drawn between friend and friend, race and race. That's correct. What did your parents <clears throat> told you about uh, African Americans or black people? Did you hear the N-word growing up? Did your family use the N-word? I think my, my uncle did, mm -hmm. but I, <clears throat> my mother would not have used it. I don't know about my father, but uh, mother didn't believe that there would, should be any distinction between African-Americans and white people. When daddy got a little more affluent, my mother uh, nursed almost exclusively in the African-American homes. And when my daddy was also gone, he was quite busy with community affairs, then I would stay in the home of Rachel and Jack Clark, mm -hmm. and I would sleep on the floor on a pallet and uh, stuffed with corn shucks, and Rachel would let me pull the pallet near the fireplace in the wintertime. But I'm not as old as you, but I do remember pallets on oh, the floor you? with corn well, shucks. My grandmother had them. Yeah, it, was, it was a kind of a, an exaltation for me to stay with, Richard, with Rachel really? and, and Jack. Yes. Rachel affected my life as much as any other human being. In fact, I tried to think of the five people other than my own parents who shaped my life. And only two of them were white. <clears throat> the other three were African-Americans who shaped my life when I was growing up. Well, it must be having grown up surrounded by African-Americans and, and seeing African-Americans as real people, as real human beings and affecting your life. Why do you think we're at such a divide in this country right now? It feels that racism is rearing its ugly head in ways unimaginable black men being shot. I was in the submarine force. I was a submarine officer. 
When I came home uh, in 1953, it kind of the initiation of the civil rights movement. And I think we went through that era and eventually wound up in the early 1960s uh, when Johnson got the civil rights bills passed. And then we kind of breathed a sigh of relief in this country. You know, the time for racial discrimination is over. And we kind of took it for granted. And I think more recently we've seen with the police uh, activity against innocent black people that we still have a long way to go, mm. that we haven't yet overcome this handicap for both black people. What do you think is our world's greatest wound? I think the inequity among people, the inability of people who are deprived because of their birth or because of their parents' status to strive for an accomplishment of success and the oppression that is exerted by the powerful and rich people to stay in an ascendant position in society, economically and culturally and, and so forth. So how do each of us participate in healing the world's greatest wound? You know, I would say that the human society reached the apex or epitome of, of moral and ethical commitment shortly after the Second World War when we decided we won't have any more wars. We'll form the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And then we passed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I think that exemplifies or personifies or clarifies the essence of moral and ethical values that we derive from all the great religions, peace, human rights, equity, and so forth. And, um, and we have now abandoned that deep and penetrating and exalted commitment to have peace and equality of opportunity among all people. That's the essence of human rights. And obviously, you've been committed to it, won a Nobel Peace Prize for it. Do you feel that your influence after the presidency has been even more impactful than during the presidency? I think when I was president of, a, of the most powerful and influential nation on Earth, I had more total influence over you know, peace and, and mm -hmm. progress and things like that. But the last 35 years since I left the White House has been the most uh, challenging and uh, interesting and adventurous and unpredictable and gratifying times of my life because we've dealt with literally millions of individual people in the tiny villages all over the world, and we treat people for diseases. And we basically eradicated getting worm disease. That's true. Along with smallpox. Along with smallpox, yes. yeah. So does that make... Would you, I mean, it's interesting that you nor Mrs. Carter ever sort of sat back on your laurels because you really could have just gone to Plains and, you know, yeah. worked on the peanut farm. But we still do that. <laughs> worked on the <laughs> but peanut not farm. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Instead, of, instead of traveling the world. When you came out of the White House, was there a time where, because, I mean, people were battering you pretty harshly about the presidency, and then in came the Reagan era. How did you rate yourself? You look back on that time and you say... With gratitude and, and I'd say, uh, an adequate modicum of uh, satisfaction. Mm -hmm. In this book, I describe the things that we actually accomplished for good that won't be reversed, and the things that I tried and, and didn't quite accomplish because of changing circumstances and so forth. But uh, I did the best I could. Uh, as my vice president said, we told the truth, we obeyed the law, and we kept the peace, <laughs> and we promoted human rights. So, uh, you know. 
when you stood there accepting the Nobel Peace Prize, could you feel, because many times you're in the midst of extraordinary things happening and you can't feel the essence of what that means to be received that well. Could you feel that sense of accomplishment? Did you feel that? Yeah, you know, I really felt accurately that it was not uh, a reward for me, but a reward for what the Carter Center was doing. Mm -hmm. and, and that's true, it was. And uh, so the Carter Center has, has an overall commitment of, of promoting human rights. And we look on human rights as uh, a, an ability to live in peace and to believe that your future will be better than your past might be. And you so believe in human rights which obviously is inclusive of women's rights, that you left the Southern Baptist Convention? Yes, I did. I was very active in the Southern Baptist Convention. And in 2000, they had a convention in Orlando, Florida, and they decided or ordained several things that were contrary to my basic beliefs in Christ. One of them was that women are inferior to men and don't have a role to play in a leadership position in the Southern Baptist Convention. So now women are forbidden to be a, a pastor or chaplain in the military or a deacon in a church. So Rose and I decided just to withdraw from the Southern Baptist Convention. So our little church in Plains now is one of the moderate churches. We've had a woman pastor and that sort of thing. So uh, we have a, a, a different kind of uh, church from the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't criticize them. They have their own beliefs, but uh, but we just decided not to be part of it. Because anyway. there's no human rights unless there's women's rights. I think that's record, and I believe that the most serious violation of human rights on earth is the abuse of women and girls. Yes. Tell me, when you were a little boy, you were asked whether or not you wanted to be baptized. You said yes. You accepted Christ as your Savior. You had your view of what it meant then to be a Christian. Has that view expanded over the years, your view of... Well, obviously, I've grown in, in knowledge and, and intelligence and ability and experience. The number one church in my neighborhood was an African Methodist Episcopal Church, yeah. AME Church. AME Church. And it's still there. It was the only church in archery where I lived. But my parents were Baptists, and I went when I got old enough, I went to the Baptist Church in Plains. And, and I didn't understand then the details or nuances of the Christian faith. It was only later when I studied. I began to teach uh, Bible lessons when I was in the Naval Academy. And then when I came home from the Navy, I still volunteered to teach Sunday school. And my wife also taught Sunday school in the same church. And then, uh, and I still teach Sunday school every Sunday. I know you're going to leave here and go teach Sunday school, you said. That's right. So I could go to Plains and I could sit in Sunday school. Absolutely. Come, please. I would love to have <laughs> you. What's your Sunday school lesson going to be? Do you know? You know, we've already. I've taught four lessons on Job, mm. the book of Job, which is very difficult, by the way. You know, why does God let good things, yes, bad God. things happen to good people? Yes. And, and, but I'm going to change this Sunday because that's what the lesson title says to the definition of love. In the English language, we only have one word for love. In the Greek, which was used to write the New Testament, there are four different definitions of love. I'm going to teach the four definitions of love, part of all, and then just point out how preeminent this is. Wow. And the four are? Well, one is eros, which yes. is just physical love. Another one is friendship. Uh, another one is uh, the love of a parent for children, which is the same love that an animal has for its offspring. 
And then the final one is uh, agape love, which is uh, unselfish love. Love for people that don't deserve to be loved and don't love you back. Yes. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. You started out being a politician, and now you're known as philanthropic humanitarian. Which do you like better? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I never was a good politician. My, my wife was a much better politician than I. But, but I, I enjoyed the opportunity in politics to, to utilize my talent. You liked using the platform? I did, yes, mm -hmm. and the influence. Right. Would you be able to become president today? Absolutely not. There's no way now for you to get the Democratic or Republican nomination without being able to raise two or three hundred million dollars or more. And I would not be inclined to do that and I would not be capable of doing it. So that's, we've become now an oligarchy instead of a democracy. And I think that's been the worst uh, damage to the basic moral and ethical standards of Americans' political system that I've ever seen in my life. And when you get to the Washington, you've already alienated Democrats from Republicans and Congress from the president. And we have red states and blue states. We never had any of that mm -hmm. 25 or 30 years ago. But still hard to get things passed, but it wasn't the kind yeah. of alienation that we well, see I got, now. I had just as much support from Republicans as I did Democrats when I ran for president. But I should have organized the Democratic Party to get me reelected, which I'm not sure would have brought me a better life if I had had a second term. I think what I've done at the Carter Center has been uh, better than what I might have achieved if I'd been president. My wife doesn't agree, by the way. Did she want a second term? Absolutely, and she still, if I had said this in her presence, she said, no, no, you would have been much more effective if you had been had a second term. Wow. But I, I don't think so. So what is the essence of a full life? You know, I read your autobiography and I realize that, gee, all, although we see you in it's President Carter and we still see, you know, you still travel with some Secret Service and you still have the adornments of that. But the life that you have created for yourself 
is a big, full, rich life that goes beyond the definition of what that White House and, and the presidency was. Well, because I've just, I've been fortunate and I've taken advantage of that. Well, you know, my-, my You worked at it. It seems you I worked did. at it. You had well, a plan. Well, my, my high school teacher, Mr. Hugh Coleman, said we must accommodate changing times, but cling to principles that never change. And so I've tried to accommodate changing times and, and to take whatever talent or ability I had to expand my heart and expand my mind. And I, I learned quite early in life uh, that when I do have a failure in life, to get over that and to try for something even greater. Wow. What are the principles and values that you hold true and embrace in your daily life that continue to guide you? I think the best way to express that from a, a joint secular and religious way is what uh, a Cuban pastor told me. His name was Eloy Cruz. Uh, he said, you just have to love God and love the person in front of you at any particular time. And that's, uh, I think, a good theology and, and a good lesson in life, which requires constant reminder. Mm -hmm. You know, that When you look at other people, do you see God in other people? I try to, mm -hmm. at least when I'm in that attitude. I can't say that I'm, <laughs> I'm not, I have my defects. I know I'm not always that way, but I try to. And, and this is what one reason Rose and I build habitat houses. We, we, we spend a full week every year in some remote place building habitat houses. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've learned is that when we work side by side with a family that's never had a decent home in their lives, and we begin to comprehend quite clearly and vividly that their moral values are just as good as mine and their ambitions are just as great as mine. And uh, we realize that in the past, just because somebody is poverty stricken and deprived of what we look upon as successes in life, that they are inferior. And that's a major lesson I think I've learned in my adult life, and particularly since I left the White House, is that people are not inferior. Do you and Mrs. Carter read the Bible to each other? Every night for 45 years, we've always, we read the Bible together. And uh, we mostly read it in Spanish. Aren't you coming up on your 70th wedding anniversary? Yes, I just passed my 69th two weeks ago. Okay, so? So we read the Bible every night. One night she reads a chapter in the Bible, next night I read a chapter. And, uh, and ordinarily we read it You've in Spanish. You've done that for 45 years? I, we started reading it every night when I began to campaign for president and about 40 years ago. And so when, when I'm on a trip like this, we read the same passage in the Bible. So she's reading in Plains, Georgia, and I'm reading in last night in San Francisco. In San Francisco, yeah. yeah. It kind of binds us together. I mean, it's very clear when people talk about you or see you, it's very clear that yours is a love like like everybody would wish that they would have. Well, I've been you, lucky, yeah. You fell in love on the night you were supposed to go out with a pageant queen. That's right. She was Miss Georgia Southwestern. Okay, Miss Georgia Southwestern. She was a beauty queen. That's beauty right. queen. <laughs> and the beauty queen had a family reunion, that's right? That's right, yes. And you could, and she, so you, you weren't invited to the family reunion. No, that's right. Thank goodness. And I wanted to have a date because I was getting ready to go back to Annapolis uh, for another time of isolation, you know, yes. and, 
And so I was cruising around Plains and, and saw Rosen on the front steps of the Methodist Church. It was Sunday night, and I asked if she would go to a movie with me. And she you were just cruising around looking for somebody? Yeah, that's right. And the next morning, my mother asked me, what did I do when I know I had a family reunion? I said, well, I, I had a date. She said, who'd you go with? I said, Rosen Smith. She said, what did you think of Rosen? I said, she's the one I'm going to marry. I hadn't approached that subject with Rosen. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it myself. What it's, was it you knew? What was it you knew or felt? You know, I don't, I can't really quantify it or describe it in words, but I knew that she was, uh, she was quiet. She was extremely intelligent. She was very timid, by the way, beautiful. And um, there was just something about her that, that uh, was... You're irre- blushing. Irresistible. I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> You're blushing. And about seven months later... Uh, 69 years later? Rosen came up to Annapolis to visit me on Lincoln's birthday. And I asked her to marry me. And she said no. And then from then until late May, she maintained no. And I kept trying and finally she said okay. And why did she say no? Tell us. She had promised her father on his deathbed that she would finish college. And what is it that makes it work? You know, I've had many discussions with people here. Gary Zukav uh, wrote a book on spiritual partnerships for which he says a spiritual partnership is a partnership between equals for the purpose of spiritual growth. Each is allowing the other to, to, to grow in grace, essentially. I certainly wouldn't argue with any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, a secret to long marriage, choose the right person. That's the first thing. And then uh, we decided fairly early in our life to give each other plenty of space. Rosalind has her own ideas, her own ambitions, her own goals in life, which in some ways are different from mine. I, I let her do her thing, she lets me do my thing. And we uh, try to resolve our inevitable and fairly frequent differences <laughs> before we go to bed at night. And I think reading the Bible helps with that. And then. Um, it's kind of hard to be mad if you're going to sit and read the Bible together. That's true, it is. Yeah. And then um, we try to find all the things that we'd like to do together. Sometimes things we never had done before. Still? Still. Yeah, we, in fact, uh, I wrote a book once called Sharing Good Times yeah. about how Rose and I have struggled as we grew older and older to find things that we had never done before that we would enjoy doing together. Or things that I did and she didn't that she would join me in doing. For instance, we've become very avid downhill skiers. I was 62 years old before I ever put on a pair of skis, and she was three years younger. And we are avid fly fishers. We go, that's our main source of recreation. I've heard it's really like, you need skill. It's, it's like an art. Yeah. Wow. So, okay, I know this is personal, but I want to know what the pillow talk is between you all. Do you talk about politics, or do you talk about your grandchildren? We talk mostly, I'd say, about our family. You talk about And sometimes about the differences that Rosen has than I in the Carter Center. But I would say a lot of it is our family. We have not only our four children, but we have 12 grandchildren and 10 great-grandchildren now. Do you have a morning ritual? If you do, describe it. I get up quite early. Uh, when I'm writing a book, I get up about 5 o'clock. And I, and I write. So there's an order to this. There is. Okay. And then about seven o'clock, uh, I meet with Rosen and we have breakfast together. 
quite often we cook. And the first thing I do when Rosen wakes up is I, I always take her a cup of coffee and a glass of orange juice. And I get a kiss. <laughs> one, one time, a long time ago, uh, <clears throat> I went into my study and started turning on my computer and I saw the date there, August the 18th. And I said, that's my wife's birthday and I forgot it. <laughs> so I did some fast thinking and I wrote on a little piece of paper, I, I promise as a birthday present to do anything you ask me to. Wow. Unrestricted. And she, and I took her the paper, she thought for a while and she finally said, okay, I'd like for you to bring me a cup of coffee every morning. Forever? She, forever. So I have. That's been about 25 years. So that's the first thing I do. So I'm kind of embarrassed to talk about that. But anyway, <laughs> that's the way I start my morning. And then I go back to work, and I have, a, I have a wood shop 20 steps away. When I get tired of working on the computer, uh, writing a book or something, I go out to my wood shop and I design and build furniture. I paint pictures. Wow. So, uh, Your artwork, yes. yes. I do that. And what makes you laugh out loud? I think it's primarily my grandchildren and the, and the strange things they say. Amy has a little boy who's now four years old. She has another son that's uh, 16. And uh, and when I... Our little Amy that grew up in the White House uh, has a son 16 and a four-year-old. Most people think she's still nine years old. I know. We still think <laughs> of a little bit red hair. Yes. But she's a school teacher now. And so I, I think the main thing is that... Uh, that make me laugh out loud on my grandchildren. Whether they're funny or not, I you know just the way they... What do they call you? Papa. They call you Papa? Yeah. yeah. They all call me Papa. Yeah. It's been my honor. My honor It's to been have a pleasure you. for me. I've enjoyed it. Uh, I've admired you for all of your public life, and I, I'm proud of what you do. Thank you so much. Mr. President, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.